Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast Dr. John Pollock. Dr. Pollock is an associate professor at Duquesne University, and he has two interesting and, I believe, very complementary interests and activities. One, he's a recognized scientist who has a focus on the development of nerve cells in the eye, and also he's been very active and very successful in the development of information and videos related to the education of the public pertaining to tissue engineering and regenerative medicine. Dr. Pollock, it's a pleasure to have you on regenerative medicine today. Thank you for welcoming me. I think perhaps the best place to start is with your science. And if you'd be kind enough to perhaps begin this discussion by giving us a brief overview of your interest and the status of your research in that area. Thank you for the opportunity. My science has a couple of different perspectives. I'm actually trained as a physicist, but came into biology through biophysics, studying how perception works. The focus point of my career was going to Caltech for six years, working with Seymour Benzer, where I learned about molecular biology tools and genetics tools and studying eye development, uh, particularly in the fruit fly. During that time, one of the key things that I was able to do was understand a, a variety of different genes and how they're expressed and controlled in development to guide photoreceptor neurons as they grow from the retina to the brain. It's interesting that one of the genes that we discovered had been previously identified a few years before, about a year before by Craig Montel. It was called TRIP. TRIP we studied for quite a while as a, as a gene involved in, in phototransduction. And I set that gene aside for a while, continuing studies on transcription factors and how they regulate um, a host of genes as photoreceptor neurons get their fates established and, and grow into the brain. A few years ago, we started working on TRIP again, as many people will, will recognize, TRIP is a, a key gene involved in pain perception in the peripheral nervous system. And currently, we're doing a, a variety of projects on neuropathic pain in rats. So studies that started out in the fruit fly retina have bridged now into studying how pain perception works. And the focus of that work is to identify different aspects of TRIP expression and how expression changes and how splice variants change under different types of neuropathic pain. We have a, a variety of uh, interest among our listeners, and uh, some have an interest in the science, and some have a, an interest in, in uh, what I'd classify as outcomes. In terms of uh, this particular set of studies, what are the potential benefits to, uh, to the public ultimately? We understand this is a a work in progress, but where does this lead us to if, if this is successful? On the pain research, I think it's potentially quite, quite exciting. Right now, I think most people think about pain in terms of it hurts or it hurts a lot. And if it hurts, you take your, your non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, your ibuprofen or Tylenol. If it hurts a lot, you take some type of opiate. And both those medicines are broadcast throughout your entire body and function throughout your entire body with, with uh, obvious consequences. In fact, I think pain is pain-specific. Uh, a twisted ankle feels different than a burn and feels different than a toothache, and I don't think that's just because of where in your body the pain is arising. In fact, I think the way pain is sensed as the nociceptive system works, it's identifying different qualities of pain, and we lose track of that. But those different qualities of pain, I think, are encoded by different and distinct receptor, protein receptor systems. If we understand what those different protein receptor systems are, we can ultimately make drugs, design drugs, that are specific to them. So instead of having a, a 
painkiller that's broadcast and affecting your entire nervous system and your entire body, we can ultimately think about pain remedies that are truly pain-specific. So, Dr. Pollock, this is interesting, but uh, if I understand your strategy and your philosophy, yours is to develop the uh, basic science underlying designer painkillers, whereas the ultimate embodiment or implementation of this would be by others. Is that correct? Absolutely. I, I'm, a, I'm a basic scientist. I uh, look at ways to study the, the basic mechanisms and the biology of these systems. And the information that we provide, I think, will be very helpful to others who design the drug. I also find this interesting in that we've had uh, several other recent guests on this podcast who have talked about personalized medicine. And in fact, I guess this is just another form of personalized medicine in a way. Uh, indeed it is. And I think one of the, the ultimate problems, but also an ultimate solution for pain studies like we're doing, has to do with how individuals interpret pain differently. Everybody feels a little different when the same thing happens to them. And even in the studies that we're doing on the rat right now, we're finding different individual rats respond differently. And the old notion that we could study a couple dozen rats and average their results is not quite sound. We actually have to individually look at the rats, look at how their pain is reported, and then also individually look at how the gene expression has been uniquely changed in that, in that animal. So ultimately, I think the designer drugs that would be created will have to be matched to individuals. Uh, in, in the worst case scenario, these TRIP genes are, are known to be expressed in many different tissues, and you wouldn't want a circumstance where the particular TRIP isoform that you're shutting down to alleviate pain from a broken foot is also a TRIP that's uniquely used in that individual in their heart muscle. I guess the other observation that occurs to me is that uh, while pain is undesirable, pain is also informative, and presume there needs to be a way to uh, moderate pain and control it, but uh, to eliminate it may be undesirable. Is that a correct presumption? Uh, well, I, I think in large cases that's probably true. A distinction in, the, in studying the nervous system is that the pain is essentially a phenomena of your, of your brain. It's the way you think about the sensory information that you're receiving. The nociceptive system is, is, a, is part of your peripheral nervous system. It's receiving information about the world around you. So you don't want to just ignore pain. And pain remedies that, that cause your body to do that have dire consequences, and that's why they're controlled substances in many cases. So I think having a remedy that modulates the amount of information that's coming to the brain and lets you interpret that pain appropriately but doesn't dominate your ability to function, that's sort of the goal that we're looking for. Dr. Pollock, this is a, uh, a fascinating area in terms of uh, developing some clearer understanding of, of gene splicing and basic science. I presume that uh, there's a sponsor or sponsors that make this possible? Yes, indeed. We've uh, benefited from some pilot study project grants from the Emma and Samuel and Emma Winters Foundation uh, here in Pittsburgh. Well, I commend you for what you're doing in this area, and I uh, wish you best uh, wishes for continued success. As I said in the introduction of this discussion, you're also widely known and recognized for what you've done in terms of the educational aspects, tissue engineering and regenerative medicine. I've had the pleasure of seeing uh, some of your productions in this regard, and they certainly are nationally recognized for their quality and their effectiveness. Uh, perhaps uh, we could begin this part of the discussion by asking you to uh, 
give us a, an overview of uh, some recent accomplishments, and then we can maybe look forward to some of the things that are on the horizon. Sure. I'd like to start off by acknowledging, in this case, that the, the work we're doing on uh, has been supported over the last several years by the National Center for Research Resources, which is a component of the National Institutes of Health. This is an R25 uh, mechanism considered a science education partnership award. The great thing about these grants is it gives us five years of funding to explore and then articulate ways to teach the public about the great discoveries of modern biology and modern science. And in our case, what I've done is used the unique idea of planetarium space as projection space. Normally you think when you walk into a planetarium you're going to see a star show, but with the wonderful projection space of this dome that wraps around and over your whole head, we recognized that we could use that as a place to show people the workings of their, of their body and to look at tissues and cells and take you right inside of um, those organs. Biologically, we like to tell a story in four ways. We will pick a story and talk about what's normal about that tissue, how it functions, what it's doing for your body. And second, we'll talk about things that go wrong, how a trauma or disease can affect that organ. The third step is to briefly talk about how modern medicine treats that disease. And then the fourth is to look at the promise and potential of tissue engineering and regenerative therapies. We've done now, I guess, eight different shows. The Tissue Engineering for Life project that started in the year 2000 first focused on looking at bone tissue engineering. And we picked that topic because when we were talking about using a show in a planetarium space, our audience is indeed the entire general public. It's, the science centers consider their audiences to be people who are basically four to, to 90 year olds. Everybody is going to be there. And you need a show that's um, not scary. You need a show that's interesting and fun and accessible to children. You need a show that's informative and intelligent for adults. It's actually a, a, a bit of a challenge. The thing that's been fun for us is to pick topics that will make sense to everybody. And we picked bone tissue engineering in the first case because most kids know someone who broke a bone or they broke a bone themselves. And most of the time, bone heals and heals well. But the potential of tissue engineering would allow bones, common breaks, to heal much faster or to help provide therapies for catastrophically broken bones. So those, uh, that first show allowed us to create animations that took the audience into living bone, showed people that bone was made up of something that had a lot of cells and blood vessels and different types of cells and literally give you a sort of a flying tour of, of bone structure. We show people how breaks happen and that uh, there's blood clotting with the break and how osteoclasts and osteoclasts, uh, osteoblasts come back in to help heal the broken bone just like they do in remodeling bone in the first place. Part of the movie brings in the concept of scaffolds. Synthetic scaffolds are described and, and uh, demonstrated and then also stem cells. For the sake of the movie, we, we first describe stem cells as young cells, and again, we, we think of the, an easy-to-understand access point of using bone marrow-derived stem cells. So those things we, we demonstrate in the movie and show how the stem cells can, can work with the scaffold to, to ultimately grow new bone. When that movie was produced, we intentionally made that movie a, a test movie. We wanted to see how audiences would respond to that first movie 
and did a, a substantial amount of both pre and post testing on it. And we found out that the audience learned a lot. We, we studied in that first movie general audiences, so we had respondents who were children as well as teens and adults. We also found that some stylistic features of the movie could and should be changed. So by design of the project, we went back and, and re-edited that movie, but also produced more movies on tissue engineering. The second topic to be included was heart muscle tissue engineering. For the second movie on heart and bone tissue engineering, we had found out while we were producing the show that, um, based on the first study, that we really needed to do something to engage the younger audiences a little more thoroughly. So we modified the script a little bit, softened it, and let it, made it a little sophisticated. And also, um, on the good idea of Laura Gonzalez, introduced some animated characters to help tell the story. You see, in the first case, we used the style of a planetarium show where you'd look at the images on the dome and hear a voice come out of the dome that would tell you what was going on, sort of the, the narrator story. But we realized that people needed a face to engage, and our best approach to that was to make an animated character. So we invented Dr. Emily Alivable. Dr. Emily Alivable is a research scientist, a medical researcher, and she has a, uh, a friend who happens to be a cartoon levitating robot, and they talk about tissue engineering and regenerative medicine. So in the second show, we actually made two versions of that show. We made a, a version that was in the same slightly sophisticated style, just voices telling you the story and learning about bone and, and heart tissue engineering. And then we used almost exactly the same script, some very subtle word changes, but cast it as a sto story between Dr. Leavable and, and her, her friend, Regena Robot. And we tested these 300 children by putting them into two groups. One group looked at one movie, the other group at the other movie. Both groups had the same pre-survey on attitudes and knowledge about tissue engineering and stem cells and regenerative medicine. And they both had the same post-survey on, on knowledge and attitudes. And we learned that both groups learned extremely well. The reporting on, on differences was quite substantial. We went from audience responses of, of having no knowledge on some key points, such as where stem cells came from, to averages of, uh, average improvements of, of 70 and 80 percent in understanding where stem cells come from. We also learned that, not terribly surprisingly, the audiences found the animated characters to be much more enjoyable and that it was likely that they would be um, more willing to recommend the animated character show for their friends to see, that they'd come back and see that show again. So we learned from that and we've stayed with using animated characters to help tell the stories that we work on. So with that as a legacy, my second Science Education Partnership Award started in 2006. This is, again, from the National Center for Research Resources. And the first topic we tackled with that was type 1 juvenile diabetes. We wanted to tell that story, again, because we felt it was going to be accessible to children. About 1 in 500 children have diabetes. Most of the time, it's treated well and doesn't have immediate dire consequences, so it's, it's an accessible story in that regard. And I think it also, um, many people would, would recognize, has high potential for tissue engineering and um, regenerative medicine therapies in the near future. The story we wanted to tell wasn't just about diabetes. We really wanted to talk about the immune system. And we struggled with that for quite a while. How do you tell a general audience about the complexities of the immune system? 
and how the adaptive immune system can lead to an autoimmune disease like type 1. What we settled on was a, a story that starts with a child who's just been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and is home from the hospital and being tucked into bed by her mother. These are animated scenes. And the child is asking her mother, why did this happen and what's wrong? And the mother starts telling her you know, a little bit about what's gone on and recognizes the mother's a scientist that she can give a little more information. So she tells the child a bedtime story about the evolution of the adaptive immune system and eventually goes back a, almost a billion years in time of evolution to very simple cells and we look at how the adaptive immune system came to be by, by following it through evolution piece by piece adding different concepts in along the way. The film then comes to a point where we, we, we look inside the pancreas and, and see some of the islet cells being destroyed and then look at the potential of stem cell therapies to repopulate that with, uh, with functioning cells. So in the course of 15 or 20 minutes, an audience gets an overview both of some of the basic um, mechanisms that occur in the type 1 diabetes as well as some of the basic functions of, of the immune system. The film has tested well. Lots of audiences have enjoyed it. In fact, the local um, Ju Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation uh, chapter has used it for a, uh, an event for their, for their families to have an outing at the Science Center for, that's both fun and, and informative. One of the underlying reasons for designing that film the way we did was that by having a central element on evolution, explicitly on evolution, it put the Science Center and the Buell Planetarium in a position to use that film to help highlight an exciting event that's going to come up next year. Charles Darwin's 200th birthday is on February 12th, 2009. And we wanted to have the Science Center have opportunities to raise awareness not only about the sense of the film, but also the great fundamental principles of science that, that Charles Darwin articulated so many years ago. So you uh, shared with this uh, some of your accomplishments and you made reference to the animated characters that you, you used. And I've, uh, as I said earlier, I've had the pleasure of seeing some of your productions and I think the animated characters are a very, very effective tool in terms of uh, interesting children in, the, in the, the area and in the science and so forth. And I gather from what you just said that your data affirms my observations. Uh, in, indeed it does. The, the, the children, I think everybody likes to see a face telling a story. Um, I think we connect to that much more effectively. We introduced the animated characters with the concept that the, that the children would have that, that person to listen to, to, to look at and, and think about. But it was very important to me that the animated characters who come into the stories are not silly, they're not goofy, they're thoughtful characters. Uh, we use animated characters for the simple reason that on a production side, I can, through my, my talented team of animators, produce an animated character. We've experimented with videotaping people, um, having actors tell the story, and Hollywood does a great job and Hollywood has a huge budget. And we don't have a huge budget and it's really, really hard to do. <laughs> it's really hard to do it well. So we leave that to the professionals and we stay with the animated style for, for our shows. Uh, Dr. Pollock, uh, you started to tell us about the Darwin Project and I interrupted to share my observations about your animated characters. Can you give us a bit more detail in terms of the Darwin Project? Sure, this has turned out to be a really exciting extension of my Science Education Partnership Award. 
what we recognized with the, the, having the film at the Science Center that talked a little bit about evolution was that we really should do more than that. And my colleague Dave Lampy at Duquesne University has, for the last several years, sponsored and organized a Darwin Day lecture where we bring in a notable scientist to talk about the, the fundamental principles of science or the, that Darwin discovered or the, the human impact issues of, of uh, evolution. What we've done for next year is expanded the Darwin Day lectures to six evening lectures, actually seven evening lectures throughout the city of Pittsburgh, starting with Janet Brown at the Carnegie Museum of Natural History. And then we've also added in another lecture series of scientists who come to campus every Friday to talk about their science, as we normally would with seminars. But those scientists were selected to also be interested and willing to give public lectures. So on this following Saturday, they're going to the Natural History Museum to give a public lecture on, on their piece of science and evolution. But we wanted to do more. So we extended the partnership beyond the Carnegie Science Center and the Carnegie Museum of Natural History to include the Pittsburgh Zoo and PPG Aquarium, the National Aviary, the Phipps Conservatory and Botanical Gardens in Pittsburgh, and the Children's Museum. And for each of those museums, what my SEPA project is doing is producing a museum asset, not as grand as a whole planetarium show, but, but something that helps to tell the story of, of Darwin and evolution that's specific to that museum. So obviously with the botanical gardens, we're talking about plants, and at the zoo, we're talking about animals. Um, the Natural History Museum, we have another educational tool for uh, looking at fossils and the, and the fossil record. So for each place, these assets are being built, and we're also developing, as we've done with all the movies, building teaching curriculum packages that make it easier for teachers to use the resources as they come to the museum or even to take them into the classroom. For most of the tools, we're creating them in a way that the teachers can actually ultimately get a copy for their own school. Just like we did with the planetarium shows and the tissue engineering movies, those are all available on DVD and these other assets will be as well. The last thing I'll mention is that we wanted to sort of demystify Charles Darwin as an individual and we're creating a, a tool, interactive tool, that basically lets you ask a question of Charles Darwin. We interviewed about a thousand people as to what question they would ask and we've written those questions up We've hired an actor and had him portray Darwin answering those questions. And it's important to know that the answers that are being spoken are actually based explicitly on Darwin's own words. Darwin recognized almost all of these questions in his lifetime and wrote copiously on them, both in letters to his friends and colleagues as well as in his books. So we've done a scholarly effort to give people an opportunity to have interview with, with Darwin, talk to Darwin directly, and also recognize that Darwin died a long time ago and a lot of great science has come up in between. So we have modern experts, a wide range of modern experts, that also help to answer the questions. The experts include paleontologists as well as religious people, Catholic priests, Protestant ministers, rabbis, ACLU lawyers, really a wide range of people to help the general public understand and learn more about Charles Darwin and, and this great principle of evolution. Sounds like a fascinating project, and I certainly look forward to uh, seeing it when it's, uh, it's available. Speaking of availability, you just mentioned that the preceding productions are available on DVD. Uh, how does one go about getting these if there's an interest in using them in the classroom or in, in other forums? best place to start is my page, which is www.sepa.duq.edu. 
duquesneuniversity.edu. I'm at Duquesne University, and all of the resources, the, the planetarium shows, the DVDs, the Darwin Project, the educational tools, everything is, is uh, linkable through that website. Uh, Dr. Pollock, I have to commend you again both for your science as well as your educational outreach initiatives. The, uh, you just shared with our listeners the uh, web address for additional information, and this will be also posted on the uh, podcast website. Uh, as we conclude this uh, podcast, I'd like to remind our listeners that we welcome suggestions in terms of topics to cover. You can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. I'd again like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Until we meet again in two weeks, uh, best wishes, and uh, we look forward to joining you again soon. Thank you.